The scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about the fact that, well, we talked about apostasy. We talked about the, the great risk of drifting away from Jesus Christ and being found to be someone who had never had genuine faith in Christ to begin with. And we saw Jesus' warning in, uh, in the garden last week, especially when he said to Peter, James, and John to watch and pray. That was back in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so there was a call there for them to watch, to watch out for temptation, to pray that they would not be tempted as they were there in the garden. Jesus is calling them and us to watch, and he's calling us to watch again here as well in this passage. Watch out for temptation. Here, watch for my glory. Be looking for my glory because I will return. The setting now is uh, just before daybreak on what we know as Good Friday. Jesus has been brought by a mob from the Garden of Gethsemane after Judas had uh, betrayed him. Jesus is brought by mob to the high priest, Caiaphas, and to the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, many of whom made up the Sanhedrin. And what we see in the text is Jesus being falsely accused and unjustly tried for the most ironic charge of all, blasphemy. He is being charged because he claimed to be who he was and is, the Son of God. But what I want to zero in on this morning is something that Jesus says in verse 62 to the high priest, you will see 
Verse 62, Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that's not the first time that Jesus talked about his return, his return in glory. In Mark chapter 13, verse 26, Jesus said, and then they, those who are alive at the end of the age, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And the Apostle John, who, who would have been present when Jesus said that in chapter 13, and who would have heard the account of what happened in our text for this morning in chapter 14, that same John, the apostle, would write in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Every eye will see him. Your eye, mine, will see the glory of Jesus. Jesus' words to the high priest in Mark 14, our text for this morning, serve as a warning. He will return in glory to judge, and his return will bring condemnation for those who have died without Christ. But the broader witness of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is that for those who have received Christ, who have called on his name for salvation, for them, may it be for you and for, for all who are present here today and for all that you know in your life who are presently without Jesus. May it be that they and we together would come to know that the revelation of his glory is in fact what will make for our greatest consolation and our greatest joy. In fact, what the scriptures teach us, especially in places like Exodus 33 and 34 and 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, is that the prospect of beholding the glory of the Lord one day in full must be and will be what animates us and what motivates us to behold his glory in the gospel now. Perhaps no one outside the Bible has understood this more than the Puritan author John Owen. Uh, in his book, The Glory of Christ, he writes this. The language is old, so pay attention. Listen close. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than in a constant previous contemplation of that glory, in the revelation that is made in the gospel unto this very end, that by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory." I must confess that though I believe the revelation made of Christ in the gospel is more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation, I have not lived as if beholding the glory 
of Christ in the gospel is the best preparation now for beholding his glory when I am with him where he is. The glory of Christ has not been the primary ambition of my life. It has not been what has compelled my reading of Scripture. It has not been the sum of my longing, both in this life and for the life to come. Maybe it has been yours. But if it has not, beloved, I hope we will see that the good and perfect will for us is that we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. So using this text as a jumping off point into others, there are three things I hope we will see this morning as we consider the glory of Christ. And the first is simply what every eye will see. What every eye will see. Second, what God wants us to see. And then third, where we see it. What every eye will see. What God wants us to see and where we will see it. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would help us to more deeply and fully see in your gospel the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that as we do so, we would live with greater anticipation and longing for that day when we behold his beautiful and great glory in full. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, what every eye will see, and I want to first just take a look at how much this trial is a travesty of justice. What is happening here in this text is absolutely a travesty of justice. It takes place at night, first of all. Capital trials, trials in which the death penalty was um, an outcome, potential outcome, were not supposed to take place at night. It was part of the Jewish law that the Sanhedrin was supposed to be an expert in. Why do it at night? Well, the short answer is because they wanted him dead before the Sabbath. They knew that they could only sentence someone as deserving of death. They could not actually, you know, execute that sentence. They were under Roman rule. The way that the laws were set up was that they could condemn someone as deserving death, which we saw in the text that they did, but Pilate or some other Roman official had to actually receive that sentence from them and then decide to execute and give the command to execute that sentence concerning uh, concerning death, in Jesus' case, by crucifixion. Only Pilate could order that. So here it is, again, it's already Friday. Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. It's the early hours of Friday morning, the pre-dawn hours of Friday. Roman officials, like Pilate, only took cases in the morning. They would hear cases in the morning. They wouldn't hear any cases in the afternoon. Again, Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. So the Sanhedrin knew we've got to get him convicted, and we've got to get him to Pilate, so that Pilate can order him crucified and he can be hung on a cross before sundown. That explains why several other regulations were ignored in this, in this uh, quote-unquote trial, if you will. First of all, capital trials weren't supposed to be convened during the festival. It's the Passover. 
Second, whenever there's a guilty verdict, an additional day was required to ensure that a fair trial had taken place. That didn't happen. It was supposed to take place in the temple precincts. That's where trials were supposed to happen. This happens in the home of the high priest. Jesus is charged with blasphemy, which of course is, you know, the, it's ironic, but, but not only that, it's, it's, it's wrong. I mean, he Blasphemy was a charge that you brought whenever someone cursed God's name. And even then, the penalty for it was death by stoning, not crucifixion. And then there's the witnesses. A trial of conviction was only supposed to be brought in, in, in the case in which there were at least two witnesses. They bring in false witnesses, and the false witnesses couldn't agree. So there weren't two Witnesses even bearing false witness. And so then, you know, the high priest just, you know, just abandons any uh, concept of, you know, judicial fairness and takes over the case himself and asks Jesus the question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And in the midst of this travesty of justice, Jesus declares his majesty. Now, in that question that the high priest asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed or blessed one? Blessed or blessed one is a title for God. You see it in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. This probably wasn't some random question that the high priest was asking because even though throughout his ministry, Jesus had largely kept his identity veiled. In the temple, when he was teaching, after the triumphal entry, just a few days prior to this, Jesus began to teach, both in parable and, more plainly, that he is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he is David's Lord, right? So he's, he's claiming for himself divine sonship. So this question that the high priest, you know, asks isn't something he's just pulling out of thin air, and Jesus replies plainly, I am. But then he goes on to say what I read earlier and want to read again in verse 62. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, power is a way of referring to God as well in the Old Testament. To, for Jesus to say, you will see me at the right hand of power is a way of saying to the high priest, you will see me vindicated by God. You are going to condemn me in just a moment as being worthy of death because you think I'm blaspheming God, but I am telling you, this is the first thing he's saying, you will see me vindicated by God at the place of highest authority. But then he goes on to say as well, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So he speaks first of his vindication and what they will see, but also his return. That's directly from Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man comes on the clouds of heaven and has given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So what Jesus is saying here to the high priest is, I am the Messiah, the son of God. I will be in the place of highest authority and I will return in glory to judge. And again, John Revelation 1, 7, every eye will see. It's a mystery. I don't know how it's gonna happen. But every eye will see Jesus Christ return in glory. Every eye will see Christ return in glory. What will that mean for Jesus? It will mean public vindication. What will it mean for believers? It will mean glorification, which that's a whole other sermon. 
And what will it mean for the lost, for those who die without Christ? It will mean condemnation. Every eye will see Christ returning in glory to judge. The second, what does God want us to see? When you think of God's glory, what do you think of? Like when you think of God's glory, what is the first thing that you think of? Is it all the omnis, right? All the alls. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. God is everywhere present. Is that what you think of when you think of the glory of the Lord? Do you think of his holiness when you think of the glory of the Lord? Do you think of his anger or his wrath? When you think of the glory of the Lord, do you think of his power when you think of the glory of the Lord? Well, what does God want us to think when we think of his glory? We're not left without an answer to that question. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses asks God, please let me see your glory. How does Jesus, I'm sorry, how does God respond what does God say? I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. Let me see your glory, God. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And then as he does, he says to Moses, he proclaims his name, the Lord. And then what are the first, what's the first thing he says about himself? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says that the first thing that Jesus tells us about his very heart is that he is gentle and lowly. And the first thing that Yahweh, that God the Father Almighty says concerning his very heart is that he is merciful and gracious. What does God want us to think, at least first, and consequently, I would say, preeminently, about his glory? It's that his glory is the revelation of his goodness. Of course, we know from that story in Exodus 33 and 34 that God said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. And when you think about the goodness of God being the first thing that God says he wants to reveal to Moses and then saying, but you can't see all my glory, all my goodness, and live. So I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of a rock. I'm gonna cover my, uh, my hand over your face because you can't see my face and live. You can't see the fullness of my glory and live. I'm only going to let you see my back as I pass, away, pass by, which is just another way of saying my glory in a, in a veiled sense. So we learn there, we learn in places like Isaiah chapter 6, that to see the fullness of the glory of the Lord or to see his goodness in full requires God to do something to us and for us lest we perish. 
in the face of his goodness, majesty, glory. But God wants us to see his goodness, which is his glory. So third, where do we see the glory of the Lord? And the answer is in Christ. In Christ. I mentioned the Apostle John earlier. John wrote Revelation. John wrote his own gospel as well, John's gospel. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle John says that in Jesus, the Word became flesh and that they beheld his glory. Glory of the only Son with the Father, full of grace and truth. And theologians recognize that John is making a link there between the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Christ, and the revelation of God's glory in Exodus 33 and 34. In John 1.18, John says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus, he has made the glory of God known. Jesus confirmed this when he said to Philip in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The glory of Jesus and that of the Father are one and the same. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He reveals the Father to us. He revealed the glory of God to the people around him in his incarnation, but in a veiled way. The glory of God was veiled in the incarnation. Philippians 2, Paul writes this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did not hold on to his prerogatives as God, but became man. Charles Wesley wrote of this, and we sing of it whenever we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which maybe ought to be a song that we don't just sing at Christmas. Wesley writes this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know what? God had to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock. In the incarnation... We are hidden in the cleft of the rock. In the same way that Moses was hidden so that he wouldn't see the fullness of God's glory and live, so too the glory of God is veiled in Jesus Christ so that those around him wouldn't find themselves seeing God's glory and perishing. The glory of Christ was veiled in his incarnation. The glory of Christ was displayed in his crucifixion. Jesus in John chapter 12 is praying, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this time in which his crucifixion, time for his crucifixion has come. But for this purpose, Jesus says, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jonathan Edwards in a sermon titled The Excellency of Christ writes this, Never did he suffer so much pain in his body or so much sorrow in his soul. Never was he in so great an exercise of his 
condescension, humility, meekness, and patience, as he was in these last sufferings. Never was his divine glory and majesty covered with so thick and dark a veil. Never did he so empty himself and make himself of no reputation as at this time. And yet never was his divine glory so manifested by any act of his as in that act of yielding himself up to these sufferings. The glory of Christ is the glory of the Lord. The glory of Christ veiled in the, crucif- in, the, in the incarnation, displayed in the crucifixion, and then now to be beheld by us in the gospel. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, calling back creation itself, calling our mind and our memory and our thinking back to that. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we see the glory of the Lord? In the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we see the face of Jesus Christ now? In the gospel. In God's word. Beholding the glory of Christ in the gospel is the key, the scriptures tell us, to all spiritual growth. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. John Owen in The Glory of Christ says this. This is, a, this is a zinger. This is a mic drop quote. The glory of Christ is the pearl of great price, which we should make every effort to find. And the scripture is the ocean into which we dive to discover this pearl. Boom. I'll read it again. The glory of Christ is the pearl of great price, which we should make every effort to find, and the scripture is the ocean into which we dive to discover this pearl. Implications then. If you are a Christian, you are called to be transformed, not transform yourself, be transformed into the image of Christ as you behold his glory. Not as you double down in moral effort. Not as you sink to the depths of remorse and despair because of your sin. As you behold the glory of Christ in the gospel, you are being transformed into his very likeness. Until you see his fullness, the fullness of his glory, one day. What Moses could not bear to see and what the high priest completely failed to see, we see in Jesus, the glory of God revealed to us through his gospel. The application is simple but life-changing. If you are not a Christian, escape the condemnation that is coming. Listen, if Christianity is true, then this part of it is true. Enter 
the deep consolation and joy of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Admit your sin, look to him for forgiveness, and let the return of Christ be your joy and not your dread. If you are a Christian, as you read the Bible, pray that you will see the glory of Christ. Be praying that God will increase your longing to see the glory of Christ on that great day in which he returns because Christ will return in glory and every eye will see him. You will see him. Will it bring you both comfort now and eternal joy for all eternity? Or will it bring for you condemnation and eternal torment? These are the two options that are laid before every person Because his return in glory will either fulfill your deepest and truest longing to behold the glory of the Lord, or it will confirm what you most deeply dread. Jesus' words to the high priest are both a warning and an invitation from the one who will soon die. We're hours away in the text. Who will soon die die to bear the torments we sinners deserve. Believe the good news. The Messiah who will return in unveiled glory to judge has come in veiled glory to save. Look to him in faith for your salvation. For those who do, the unveiling of his beautiful and great glory has begun in the gospel and the revelation of the fullness of his beautiful and great glory will soon come. And may it come soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us your Son who died in our place, rose for our justification, who invites us to look upon his face in the gospel, beholding the pearl of great great price, which is his glory, that we might be transformed by the work of your spirit in us into his likeness until that great day when we see him in all his beautiful and great glory. Oh God, would you increase our longing for that day? Lord, Help us to receive the good things of this earth with thanksgiving, but not live for those things, remembering that there is a greater, a greater thing, a greater person that is yet to come. Set our hearts toward that day, and even now increase our hunger for the full revelation of the beautiful and great goodness and glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.